In this beautiful, very special holiday episode, we share three stories, one from Alice Walker, the author of The Color Purple, one from Sandra Cisneros, and a retelling of the biblical story. In a way, it's for us outliers, the rest of us. I hope these unwrap the way we see and celebrate this holiday Christmas season. It is about reconstructing Christmas in the midst of a deconstructing faith, celebrating for the rest of us. Would it be okay? If I were to tell you that I am afraid someday, so I call you up and you call me down, would it be okay? Well, hello again and welcome to Season 1, Episode 12 of the Freed Hearts Podcast. My name is Robert Cottrell and I'm here as always with the beautiful, amazing... Oh, hang on. (laughs) All right, fine. I'm here with... Susan Cottrell. (laughs) This is a very special Merry Christmas, by the way. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Thank you. We this is a very special episode in that we are going to have a Christmas episode, a Christmas for the rest of us. We're going to share with you three Christmas stories for us, the outliers that just may forever change the way you look and celebrate this holiday. This is about reconstructing Christmas in the midst of a deconstructing faith, celebrating for the rest of us. First, we're going to share with you, I'm going to share with you an essay from Alice Walker, who was the author of The Color Purple. It first appeared in the 1950s in a Chicago newspaper. It is called My Face to the Light, Thoughts About Christmas. So here we go. I did not know what Christmas was until I moved to the West Coast. During much of my adult life, I'd viewed it as a season marked by the ritual killing of millions of trees, just as, for me, Thanksgiving is a day that represents the ritual killing and eating of millions of birds. I was sickened by the thought of all those stumps, all those bleeding necks, and by the message given to children that it is okay to sacrifice living living beings in order to express appreciation for being alive yourself, or in order to celebrate the birth of a sacred person, Jesus Christ, who was himself against killing. As a child, I had not thought of this at all. Then the message was entirely different. I grew up in a historically oppressed, racially, economically poor, rural black Southern community where Christmas was the only time it was possible to collectively celebrate the only generous and cheerful white man anyone in the community was ever likely to know, Santa Claus. This was done with such enthusiasm and tenderness, and Santa's rosy cheeks were described with such... Accuracy that as a three-year-old, one Christmas morning, I announced that I'd actually seen him the night before as he stole about the house sampling the pies and cakes my mother always made and left out for him and filling out our shoeboxes and brown paper bags with apples and raisins and oranges and nuts. What would have been the imprint on white children's minds, I was later to wonder, if once a year they were encouraged to welcome a stealthily moving large black man into their sleeping houses in the middle of the night. When I became a student in college and studied the oppression of black people by white ones and by the laws of white supremacy that still obtained in the South so that as a child I could not enter a public restaurant, library, or swimming pool, I was angry with my parents for their Santa Claus worship until I realized that, like the white figure of Christ, whom they also appeared to worship, Santa Claus represented an ideal person who was compelled to be white in a society in which the country's president, 
the mayors of towns, and the police were also white, and that their intention in accepting him was to help us all remember that there could indeed be an ideal white man worthy of friendliness and tender regard in a setting where not one white man was known to fit Santa's merry, adventuresome, and undiscriminating description. It was their desire to instill in us, amid the the racist violence of the segregated American South, as perhaps it is the desire of black parents today to instill in their children in the apartheid violence of South Africa, a degree of faith in the miracles that one can expect to occur in human nature per se, a degree of hope. But when I moved to Northern California, I left behind all all I had known about Christmas. And against the hectic shopping days that Christmas has become for so many, I barricaded myself, going to the beach, reading, taking long walks, eating at Chinese or Thai restaurants on Christmas Day, or fasting on fruit. And then, because of the person with whom I share many of my life's rituals and a good member of its trials, I discovered what Christmas is that it is the day. It is the day of the winter solstice and was originally celebrated on the 21st or 22nd of December, the day when the sun, having gone as far south as it ever gets, begins to move back north. It is, my friend said, the day the sun, the light, begins to come back in the northern hemisphere. In a way, you could say it is the first day spring becomes possible. The birth of Jesus has been afflicted to the seeming rebirth of the sun, but the rebirth of the sun has been worshipped since many millennia before Christ. Undoubtedly, it has been worshipped by plants and single-cell animals since the very beginning of the planet's life. This changed forever how I feel about Christmas and how I celebrate it, usually these days with a, a sweat via sauna, a vegetarian feast, and music-making and dancing with friends. I would never dream of killing anything for it or even of thinking of it as an event that requires the least bit of crazy, frantic activity. For me, the excitement about the sun's return begins to build several days in advance of the winter solstice, and my celebration consists of a heightened awareness of the losing ground of winter, no matter how cold the days might be, and an intense expectation of the day itself, which, when it arrives, is greeted by my face turned up to the, if I'm lucky, sunny heaven. The days after are spent in quiet appreciation of the possibility of another spring, my favorite of all seasons, and thoughts of seeds and planting. I lie late in bed thinking of the sun as of a long-traveling friend who is at last coming back home to me, my collection of seed catalogs covering me like paper flowers. It isn't that I don't think of Christmas at all anymore as a possible birthday for Jesus Christ, though it's true that I never think of Santa Claus, faith in whom it seems to me has been perhaps permanently lost, but I think of it more as a rebirth day of every being that longs for the return of the warmth of the sun and loves the light. Surely, it is my rebirth day too. That's an essay by Alice Walker called My Face to the Light, and we thought it was really appropriate to share right now, as I think many of us are feeling that we long for spring. We long for the return of the sun. Yes. 
Okay, next we are going to read you a story from writer Sandra Cisneros, which we've slightly edited for length. And this 1980 short story, I'm sorry, 1990 short story, a family receives an oversized Christmas present from the children's school principal. However, the children are not allowed to open it until January 6th. They wonder what is inside and discover it is more than they realize. The big box came marked, do not open till Christmas. But the mama said, not until the day of the three kings, the 6th of January, do you hear? That is what the mama said exactly, only she said it in Spanish. Because in Mexico, where she was raised, it is the custom for boys and girls to receive their presents on January 6th and not Christmas. Yesterday, the mama had risen in the dark to reheat the coffee and warm the breakfast tortillas. By the time the mama had the house smelling of oatmeal and cinnamon, the papa would be gone to the fields, the sun already tangled in the trees. The boy Reuben and the girl Rosalinda would have, be, have to be shaken awake for school. The mama would give the baby Gilberto his bottle, and then she would go back to sleep before getting up again to the chores that were always waiting. That is how the world had been. But today, the big box had arrived. When the boy Reuben and the girl Rosalinda came home from school, it was sitting in the living room in front of the television set that no longer worked. Who had put it there? Where had it come from? A box covered with red and green paper and a card on top that said, Merry Christmas to the Gonzalez family. Frank, Earl, and Dwight Travis. P.S. Do not open till Christmas. That's all. Two times the mama was made to come into the living room, first to explain to the children and later to the father how the brothers Travis had arrived in the blue pickup and how it had taken all three of them to lift the box and bring it inside and how she had had to nod and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, because those were the only words she knew well in English. Then the brothers Travis had nodded as well, the way they always did when they came and brought boxes of clothes or the turkey each November, ever since the children had begun to earn high grades at school, where Dwight Travis was the principal. But this year, the Christmas box was bigger than usual. What could be in a box so big? The boy Reuben and the girl Rosalinda begged to be allowed to open it. And that is when the mama had said, January the 6th, the day of the three kings, not a day sooner. It seems the weeks stretched themselves wider and wider since the arrival of the big box. The mama got used to sweeping around it because it was too heavy to push in a corner. But since the television no longer worked, ever since the afternoon the children had poured iced tea through the little grates in the back, it didn't really matter if the box obstructed the view. Visitors that came inside the house were told and told again the story of how the box had arrived, and then each was made to guess what was inside. Each night, when the papa came home from the fields, he would spread newspapers on the cot in the living room where the boy Reuben and the girl Rosalinda slept and sit facing the big box in the center of the room. Each night, he imagined the box held something different. The day before yesterday, he guessed a new record player. Yesterday, an ice chest filled with beer. Today, the papa sat fanning himself with a magazine and said in a voice as much a plea as a prophecy, air conditioner. <laughs> but the boy Reuben and the girl Rosalinda were sure the box was filled with toys. They even punctured it in the corner with a pencil when their mother was busy cooking, but they could see nothing inside but blackness. When Christmas Eve finally came, the family Gonzalez put on their good clothes and went to midnight mass. They came home and everyone was allowed 
to open one present before going to sleep, but the big box was to remain untouched until the 6th of January. On New Year's Eve, the little house was filled with people coming in and out. That night, the children did not sleep in the living room cot as they usually did because the living room was crowded. Instead, they fell asleep on a lump of handbags and crumpled suit jackets on top of Mama's and Papa's bed, dreaming of the contents of the big box. Finally, the 5th of January, and the boy Reuben and the girl Rosalinda could hardly sleep. All night, they whispered last-minute wishes. The boy thought, perhaps, if the big box held a bicycle, he would be the first to ride it, since he was the oldest. This made his sister cry until the mama had to yell from her bedroom on the other side of the plastic curtains to be quiet. After a very long time, the children closed their eyes. Reuben awoke and shook his sister. The mama, frying the potatoes and beans for breakfast, nodded permission for the box to be opened. With a kitchen knife, the boy Reuben cut a careful edge along the top. The girl Rosalinda tore the Christmas wrapping with her fingernails. The papa and the mama lifted the cardboard flaps and everyone peered inside to see what it was the brothers Travis had brought them on the day of the Three Kings. There were layers of bald newspaper packed on top. When those had been cleared, the boy Reuben looked inside. The girl Rosalinda looked inside. The papa and the mama looked. This is what they saw. The complete Britannica Junior Encyclopedia, 24 volumes in red imitation leather with gold embossed letters. The girl Rosalinda let out a sad cry. The boy Reuben pulled out volume four. There were many pictures and many words, but there were more words than pictures. The papa flipped through volume 22, but because he could not read English words, simply put the book back and grunted. What can we do with this? No one said anything. Only the mama knew what to do with the contents of the big box. She withdrew volumes six, seven, and eight, marched off to the dinette set in the kitchen, placed two on Rosalinda's chair so that she could better reach the table, and put one underneath the plant stand that danced. When the boy and the girl returned from school, they found the books stacked into pillars against one living room wall and a board placed on top. On this were arranged doilies and framed family photographs. The rest of the volumes baby Gilberto was playing with. The girl Rosalinda also grew interested in the books. She took out her colored pencils and painted blue on the eyelids of all the illustrations of women. And with a red pencil dipped in spit, she painted their lips and fingernails red-red. After a couple of days, when all the pictures of women had been colored in this manner, she began to cut out a few of the prettier pictures and paste them on loose-leaf paper. One volume suffered from being exposed to the rain when the papa improvised a hat during a sudden shower. He forgot it on the hood of the car when he drove off. When the children came home from school, they set it on the porch to dry. But the pages puffed up and became so fat, the book was impossible to close. Only the boy Reuben refused to touch the books. For several days, he avoided the principal because he didn't know what to say in case Mr. Travis were to ask how they were enjoying the Christmas present. On the Saturday after New Year's, the mama and the papa went into town for groceries and left the boy in charge of watching his sister and baby brother. The girl Rosalinda was stacking books into spiral staircases and making her paper dolls to send them in a fancy manner. Perhaps the boy Reuben would not have bothered 
to open the volume left on the kitchen table if he had not seen his mother wedge her name-day corsage in its pages. On the page where the mama's carnation lay pressed was a picture of a dog in a spaceship. First dog in space, the caption read. The boy turned to another page and read all about where cashews came from. And then about the man who invented the guillotine. And then about Bengal tigers. And about clouds. All afternoon, the boy read, even after the mama and the papa came home. Even after the sunset, until the mama said, time to sleep and put the light out. In their bed on the other side of the plastic curtain, the mama and the papa slept. Across from them in the crib slept the baby Gilberto. The girl Rosalinda slept on her end of the cot. But the boy Reuben watched the night sky turn from violet to blue to gray, and then from gray to blue to violet once again. Wow. What a story. I can relate to this and that we all live in a time yeah. that is certainly not what we expected or hoped for. And, but it is maybe a time that we can find some beauty in unexpected and unanticipated gifts. What a story. Yeah, that's great. Mm. Finally, we'd like to tell you about The Scarlet Letter which is a look at the biblical story, courtesy of a friend of ours, Pastor Gail Evers. She has a free online Bible study that takes a fresh look at these familiar verses to empower the outlier. She wrote this piece for Susan, specifically for this podcast, and then Susan edited it a bit. Most of us in America have heard the Christmas story a thousand times. I mean, how many ways can you tell it? I look at this at our little nativity set and I think, yep, We've cleaned this thing up. Our shepherds and wise men and Jesus, Mary and Joseph are all so white so they can be palatable to the white cleaned up narrative that we tell. Well, today we want to tell a different story, a story for the outlier, a Christmas story for the rest of us. This is called The Scarlet Letter. The Christmas story is told in two places, in Matthew and in Luke, and the details are very different. What is striking is the subversive message in both versions. Matthew's purpose is to establish that Jesus is a king by rights. Matthew tells the story of the star in the east and the wise men traveling from far away to pay homage to the new king. His is the story of King Herod feeling so threatened that he ordered the murder of all baby boys under the age of two. And it is Matthew, it is in Matthew in which we find the grand genealogy of Jesus stretching back to King David and even further back to Abraham. But Matthew's story includes a subversive thread. In this genealogy of men, father of this person and father of that person, we find four women. Why are these women included in this genealogy, this book, written by men, for men, about men. These are four heroes, these women. Mm -hmm. Rahab saved the lives of the Israelite spies when when they went into reconnaissance in the promised land. Ruth single-handedly saved herself and her mother-in-law from starvation and ended up grandmother to the great King David. And she famously said to her mother-in-law, wherever you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. 
Bathsheba became King David's beloved wife, mother of the great King Solomon. And she played a significant role herself in kingdom politics. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus. So these are important women to include to break through that male telling of the story. But there's a deeper story. Rahab was a sex worker. Ruth was from Moab, a nation the Bible says was cursed by God and was prohibited from even entering the temple. Bathsheba, well, her story is often presented as kind of a consensual love love affair, but she was appropriated, raped by King David, who then, after impregnating Bathsheba, murdered her beloved husband, Uriah. He had the power to do it. And finally, there's Mary, an unwed, pregnant teen. And though she and Joseph married, she was always viewed with scorn, and Jesus was always considered a bastard. We never say bastard Jesus, do we? No, we don't. But his community said it. And I like to think that any of us, any of these listeners today who have been called vile names, take heart that Jesus was called a bastard. These women shared a common thread of shame, a scarlet letter, so to speak, that their society put on them. They were marked, talked about, shunned, ridiculed, shamed. You've seen people, and the more self-righteous they are, it seems, the more cruelty they're capable of. You may have received some of that. We have. But that shame does not come from God, even if the shamers want you to believe that it does. The bigger picture, God's picture, if you will, is that these women occupy a place of honor. They were honorable for billions and billions of people. For thousands of years now, uh, these people have loved them and remembered their names and honored their courage. Their shame and abuse were terrible to endure. That was only a tiny part of the story. When we look at the Luke version of the Christmas story, we see more subversion. Luke acts as a midwife, a doula, to the birth of Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptizer, and gives voice to their mothers, Mary and Elizabeth, in this narrative. When the angel Gabriel announced the conception of John to Elizabeth and Zacharias, who were well beyond childbearing years, Zacharias didn't believe it. So the angel muted Zacharias the entire length of the pregnancy. The patriarchy had its mouth sealed shut until the baby was born. These births of John and Jesus were happenings that the patriarchy didn't understand, but their mothers, who were much closer to the events, were given voice here. Voices that otherwise would have been silenced. The men were stepped back and the women were brought forward and given a platform. And what did they say on that platform? They could have said that Jesus would be a great king or that the church and the patriarchy would be established forever, but they didn't. They could have said, we're just women, our husbands will speak for us, which would not have been a surprise, but they did not. Here's what it says. Spontaneously filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth exclaimed to Mary, you of all women are blessed. You who believed what God told her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul is filled with joy because God has seen me, the lowly servant girl. God doesn't pick the proud or those in power. God chose little me. God sees the hungry and gives them food. 
instead of filling up those who already have too much. After John and Jesus were born, the voice of the patriarchy was opened again, but now this patriarchal voice had shifted to the voices of John and Jesus, and those boys continued the (laughs) same message as their mothers. Jesus said, my job is to give good news to the poor, to bind up broken hearts, to free captives, and release prisoners from darkness. I'm here to tell you, God delights in you, you. Jesus came from a long line of very special women, women who suffered under the shame that society gave them. But God saw them. God vindicated them. Society may have given these women scarlet letters, but that it's that same red that marks the word of Jesus in our Bibles. Those red letters stand against the patriarchy, against religious systems. They stand for the rest of us, and they are good news. Wow, that's a, that's a great way, uh, a fresh way to look at that. Again, never, never look at the red letters, never look at those stories the same way again. We hope these three stories have been a balm to your heart, maybe challenged a few ways in which you view and celebrate this season. However you spend these coming days, we want you to know that you are beloved, that God adores you, that your photo is on God's fridge. Mm-hmm. Our heart, and I believe God's heart, is for the least of these, those who are abused and pushed aside. This is about binding up our broken hearts, restoring wholeness and joy, releasing the chains that bind us to rules and traditions and oppressive systems, releasing us from our dark, hopeless closets. So remember, above all else, you are beloved for exactly who you are, exactly as you are, from our hearts to yours, from our home to yours. We wish you a safe, healthy holiday, a beautiful, glorious winter solstice. Happy Day of the Three Kings and Feliz Navidad. (laughs) And a beloved Merry Christmas. Bye. Would it be okay if I were to tell you that I am afraid someday? So I call you up and you call me down. Would it be okay? You've been listening to the Freed Hearts Podcast. We have extensive resources and vibrant community for you at www.freedhearts.org. Just come say hello. And if you have questions or issues or comments about the podcast, things you'd like us to talk about, reach out to us at podcast at freedhearts.org. The music is provided by Hannah Cottrell, our daughter, the Grammy-nominated Saint Sinner. And you can find out more about her at heystsinner.org. Please share this, subscribe, and follow on your favorite platform. And thanks for listening.